The views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case and do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach Freaks LLC or the Invisible Choir podcast. Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Growing up, a parent or guardian most likely at some point told you not to play video games. Whether for disciplinary reasons, the violent nature of certain games such as Grand Theft Auto, or simply just because they would quote, fry your brain. While our folks certainly meant well, they surely never anticipated that years later, professional gamers would be collecting up to $100,000 cash prizes, making what most have accrued in debt at a four-year college from a single professional championship tournament win. What a time to be alive. If this sounds mind-blowing to you, that's because it is. Esports, otherwise known as electronic sports, is a community built of gamers that come together to compete at both amateur and professional levels from all over the globe. It wasn't until the late 2000s that these competitions would erupt, becoming so huge that the video game developers and large companies would begin to notice, hoping to cash in, investing large sums of money into the next best thing that was eSports. By 2010, the larger competitions were reported to bring in upwards of $1 billion in revenue per event, filling major stadiums of nearly 20,000 fans at venues such as New York City's Barclays Center. Esports have undoubtedly become one of the fastest growing networks of the past century, oftentimes settling into the neighborhood of up to 500 million views for any given professional competition stream on popular platforms such as YouTube or Twitch. Professional gamers are seen as professional athletes. They can be found taking photos with adoring fans and signing autographs after each match at these events. Popular titles played in these competitions include Overwatch, League of Legends, Call of Duty, and the renowned football franchise Madden. Even in the virtual world, however, there is a dark side. While positivity and good sportsmanship is perpetuated in these professional gaming events, what we don't often see is the sacrifice, hard work, lack of sleep, and intense trash talk that comes with reaching professional gamer status. In a realm that is seen as an outlet, a form of escapism for so many gamers, we often fail to consider that some might get lost in the fantasy. The games become their second life, if you will, and some never make it back. But what happens when a professional gamer commits too far to his newfound place in the world? This is that story, a tragic tale of a disturbed young man and the innocent victims he would selfishly take with him one Sunday afternoon on August 26th in 2018 in Jacksonville, Florida. David Katz seemed to have a pretty good life, at least from an outsider's field of view. Growing up in the upper middle class suburbs of Howard County, Maryland, David grew up with his brother Brandon, his mother Elizabeth, and his father Richard. David's mother was a successful toxicologist working for the U.S. Food and Drug Administration in nearby Rockville, Maryland. David's father, Richard Katz, was a prominent engineer for NASA, designing electronics to be used on spacecrafts. 
terms of, quote, keeping up with the Joneses, the Katz family seemingly had it all. A nice family, a nice home, all in a wealthy tree-lined neighborhood. Neighbors noted the Katz family to be quiet but loving and friendly. Renee Williamson, who lived next door to the Katz family, remembers them bringing over a gift after she had recently had a baby. Another gesture was extended to Williamson years later, when the Katz family had invited her to one of the boys' karate tournaments when they were young. Williamson has gone on record to say that she hasn't spoken to the Katzes in years. However, everything seemed quite normal in their home. Well, at least in the beginning. In 2007, David's parents would divorce, but not before years of fighting between the two adults in the home. During this time, David began to isolate himself in his room, perhaps to drown out the arguments between his mother and father. He would soon discover the world of video games. Playing video games brought a sense of solace for David in his formidable years. He could escape the turmoil of his parents' pending divorce and immerse himself in an alternate universe. While doing so, he actually became quite talented, a positive for David in the midst of his chaotic upbringing. However, the comfort of video games would not be enough to refrain David from acting out erratically. His unruly behavior became increasingly more evident after his parents' eventual separation. The police had reportedly been called to the home on a total of 26 separate occasions over the course of several years. At times, this was due to the parents' disputes among one another, but more often than not, it was actually because of David's behavior. At the early age of just 12 years old, David was prescribed Risperdal, an antipsychotic used to treat schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. David was evaluated by several mental health experts during the course of his youth and well into his teenage years. He was diagnosed with unspecified oppositional disorder and dysthymia a chronic, low-grade yet persistent form of depression. The day following David's 13th birthday, his mother Elizabeth called the police because he refused to turn the television down, and because of his general disrespect shown to his mother and grandmother, a police report was made. Exactly one year later, the day after his 14th birthday, David Katz called the police, this time on his mother. Police reports show that David called 911 because his mother kept, quote, punishing him and taking away his video games. Domestic disputes among the parents included David's father Richard once entering the home, breaking various items on the way in, such as a flower pot outdoors, as well as taking a painting from the living room, said to be worth over $3,000, as assets were unagreed upon during the tumultuous divorce. After the separation, Elizabeth, David's mother, was awarded custody, a decision that David was not pleased with. David was vocal about wanting to live with his father, as he and his mother did not get along. Elizabeth was persistent on David taking his medication and had enlisted her son into various treatment programs for mental health. The parents continued to argue, not only over assets, but now over David's mental health and how it should be handled. David's father disagreed with most of his son's treatment plans, particularly the use of Risperdal at such a young age. Court filings show that Richard Katz disagreed that his son had ever shown any signs of being schizophrenic and revealed that he saw the medication as unnecessary. 
He would allegedly instruct David not to take the medication during visitations. As tensions grew amongst the family, more incidents involving police occurred. David's pattern of playing video games became more and more extreme. His behavior became so obsessive that he once punched a hole through his mother's bedroom door after she took away his Xbox. Elizabeth attempted to discipline her son as he would stay up pulling all-nighters playing Madden, not showering, and at times missing school. His mother would later tell police that after taking away his controllers, David would pace in circles in the early morning hours, not knowing what to do with himself without his video games. On one occasion, David locked himself in his mother's car, defiantly refusing to attend a therapy appointment. Elizabeth Katz also mentioned that her son would curl up into a ball on the floor, crying hysterically on separate occasions after taking away his gaming console for disciplinary reasons. David Katz was troubled. He would eventually be enlisted in a number of programs involuntarily by his mother, including a near 100-day stay at Redcliffe Ascent, a wilderness survival treatment program in Utah for troubled youth. He'd also been sent to Shepherd Pratt Hospital in 2007, located in Baltimore, Maryland, for 12 days, and later to Potomac Ridge in Rockville, Maryland, for 13 days. All treatments were against David's will and arranged by his mother Elizabeth. She packed David's bags on Mother's Day in 2007, kicking him out of the home temporarily. She often desperately reminded David that if his behavior didn't improve, she would be forced to send him away for treatment again, once stating, You'll roll your eyes. Fine. You'll pay. Where are you going to be tomorrow? As recorded during one of the several 911 calls to police. Though Elizabeth Katz saw David for the majority of his time split between the two parents, David's father, Richard, has gone on record to say that David has never shown any behavioral issues when in his presence during visitations. David outwardly disliked his mother and even wrote a letter to the court requesting for his father to take over full custody on David's behalf in 2010. Segments of David's letter written to the judge were read as follows. Dear Judge, today is my birthday and I'm turning 16 years old. I live with my mom and have been wanting to live with my dad. My mom is pretty crazy. She's called the police on me about 20 times for pretty much nothing, like coming home a little late or something. She also gets drunk and starts yelling at me and poking me and doesn't leave me alone. She has hit me before and always takes my stuff back because she feels like it. I also can never talk to her because I hate her more than anything in the world. Despite David's clearly problematic upbringing, which would result in poor grades at school. He did eventually graduate from Hammond High School in Columbia, Maryland in 2001, and even briefly enrolled in college. Though the volatile court proceedings and feuds within the family never seemed to fully diminish, David did manage to continue on with his true passion of playing video games. All those hours spent with his Xbox that his mother would so frequently take away when David was misbehaving actually started to pay off. Focusing on the football game Madden, Katz would continuously beat opponents online, playing under the gamer tag name Ravens Champ and later Bread. The quiet and antisocial young man from Baltimore started to recognize his talents, dedicating more and more time to his gaming. He saw a real future in his abilities. Katz eventually became a well-known figure in the Madden community and began competing professionally. He started to travel to different cities across the U.S., competing in professional competitions, some with big cash prizes. 
Fellow gamers saw Katz as, quote, slightly off, reserved, but serious. Someone who focused more on his game and less on socializing. David Katz keeps to himself. He's not here to make friends and to even get him to open up to talk to you about anything. It's, it's like pulling teeth, man. In 2017, David Katz truly made his presence known. After working his way up through the ranks, he began eliminating top contenders and progressing through to the semifinals at a Madden 17 tournament in Buffalo, New York. David, that game seemed to turn when you hit that long play down the left sideline right before halftime. You kind of went into game management mode. You decided not to score and then run the clock out for this first half. Yeah, um, my opponent probably should have called his timeouts. I took advantage that he didn't. Um, I was able to get another lucky play before the half. Um, fumble to start off the game was huge. Always a great way to start off a game um, and just kind of chewed clock. David Katz heard here speaking with EA Sports reporter and ex-NFL player Steve Tasker with little to no expression on his face after winning such a crucial match on his way to the championship. Did you have to make any serious adjustments during the game? Um, honestly, I felt like I had the ball most of the game. I wasn't really doing too much on defense. Um, he was pretty much just playing cover two, came out with some cover two beaters. And tell me a little bit about what, what you came in here today, you traveled up from Maryland, and now you get a chance to go into the semifinals. Uh, you feel you have to feel pretty good about it. You came in as a seven seed and you just knocked off the two seed and you did it pretty convincingly. Um, yeah, I don't think of myself as a seven seed. I think, personally, I'm one of the better players, um, and I like to let my game prove that. All right. Dave, congratulations. We'll see you in the next round. And guys, Larry, Zach, we'll go back upstairs to you guys. The only hint of emotion present here is the offense Katz seems to take at being referred to as, quote, the seventh seed. Steve Tasker visibly shows his discomfort and audibly stammers, most likely attributed to the uneasiness of Katz's demeanor and body language. Meanwhile, Katz seems to stare directly through Tasker after answering the reporter's questions. Katz would eventually make it all the way to the championship round of this professional tournament in Buffalo, New York, showing what most who saw him play, the most emotion he's ever portrayed during a game. I'm about winning. By any means necessary, and he's open. Oh! oh! Brandon Cooks, he's got the speed. Does he have enough juice? Last play of the game. Oh, my goodness. Touchdown, the young man. From Columbia, Maryland, the last play of the game, and he gets it done. It's a touchdown, a long house call there. I am speechless, and that is the ball game. Brand, the seventh seed, upsets the top seed, Los, and he takes it to the house. 70-plus yards there, and I cannot believe it. The gunslinger mentality to go for it, and he will be the 2017 Madden, Madden champion. champion. David Katz had won. He scored a last-minute touchdown with zero seconds left on the clock, running for over 70 yards in a major upset victory over the top seed contender. During his game-winning touchdown, David is captured on video, moving his cheeks in and out over an exaggerated smile and back down to deadpan glares, with no real middle ground of expression in between. It's almost as if he is forcing these reactions, struggling to make himself seem happy because he knows he should be at this moment. He's repeatedly shown on video after this, appearing withdrawn or even sad. The quote, gunslinger mentality phrase used by the commentator would later become an uncanny euphemism 
a strange coincidence that would foreshadow the horrors that were soon to come. Bread, unbelievable. Give it up for this kid right now. The seven seed comes in here and gets a walk-off victory. Well, along with the money that you're getting, we're also, we've got something else for you in the club series. Your Madden jersey, there you go. Way to go, Bread. Coming out on top in the championship. Number seven seed taking out the number one seed in the final. Congratulations, Larry, Zach, up to you. What a day in Buffalo. Katz was awarded a $3,500 cash prize for winning the 2017 Madden Championship, along with a Buffalo Bills official jersey with Madden Champ number 17 embroidered on the back. The jersey, along with the check for $3,500 and a trip to Los Angeles for the Madden Club Series Championship, were all presented to Katz by former Buffalo Bill defensive tackle Cyrus Quanjo. EA Sports would go on to praise Katz on their social media regarding the play that resulted in the last second win as, quote, the most exciting moment in all of the 2017 NFL Club Series championships. The Buffalo Bills organization would go on to congratulate Katz on his championship win, posting a photo of him to their official Twitter account with the caption, Congrats to David Katz, the Madden 17 Bills championship winner. Thanks for following along, Bills fans. This tweet is still active and has not since been deleted by the Buffalo Bills. You may be asking yourself at this point, well, why would it be? Though it may seem completely appropriate to post such content, especially under the pretenses that Cats had won an eSports tournament in the city of Buffalo, New York, sponsored by their organization, you most likely won't see it that way after learning what occurred at a similar event, roughly one year later. August 25, 2018. Several professional gamers and fans had traveled from all over the country to come together for a weekend-long Madden 19 tournament in Jacksonville, Florida. The tournament was to be held at the Good Luck Have Fun Game Bar, located within Chicago Pizza at the Jacksonville Landing. David Katz was among the contestants participating, driving 11 hours by himself from his father's Baltimore home. The newest version of the popular football game had just been released, and players of all skill levels were excited to come together and enjoy a fun-filled weekend, competing in the game they all love, bonding through their mutual interest in their favorite eSport. For those who may not know, the Madden video game dates back to 1988, when it first publicly appeared as an MS-DOS PC floppy disk. Since 1993, the game has been released annually over a plethora of ever-changing gaming consoles, improving its graphics and gameplay with each release. As the Madden franchise grew in popularity, so too did these events, as roughly 150 people gathered in the venue at any given time during this particular smaller tournament, all hoping to take home the grand prize of $5,000 in the end. On the first day of the tournament, a fellow gamer attempted to engage with David Katz in friendly small talk, asking which events and at what times he would be participating. Katz coldly stared back at the other gamer, cutting him off before finishing his sentence, replying, quote, Don't worry about it. Then aggravatedly walked away. It was reported that Katz kept to himself the whole weekend, wearing sunglasses indoors most of the time, while rarely speaking to others. David Katz reportedly had not changed his clothes from the day before. On the first day of the competition, he had done well in his matches, winning two times during the, quote, pooling rounds, and losing once to gamer Dennis Alston otherwise known as Evil Ken, a professional Madden player from New Jersey. Alston extended the offer of a handshake to Katz after their match, 
a gesture in which he declined with a stone-faced glare that seemingly pierced through Alston. The next day on Sunday, Katz would lose another match to Reginald Brown, also known as Boogs. Wesley Gittens, a.k.a. Joe Rice, would also beat Katz, advancing Gittens to the next round versus true boy Elijah Clayton, a fellow gamer from California. Shea Kivlin, or Young Kiv, one of the best and highest paid gamers in the entire Madden community, was hanging out socializing after one of his matches. At this moment, he then decides to leave and retire to his hotel for a brief nap. As Kivlin left the building, David Katz notices. He becomes visibly concerned. Katz allegedly asked EA Sports personnel where Kivlin was going, distressed that he was exiting the venue for some reason. As Katz rarely spoke to anyone, EA personnel found his question to be extremely odd. Shortly thereafter, Gittens and Clayton settled into the first quarter of their new game. Upon arriving to his room, Shea Kivlin decided to watch the Twitch livestream on his computer in support of his friend Trueboy Elijah Clayton, as he had just scored a touchdown against competitor Wesley Gittens. Just moments later, these exact sounds would come through Kivlin's computer speakers over the livestream. At 1.30 p.m. that Sunday afternoon, August 26, 2018, a flurry of gunfire broke out at the Good Luck Have Fun Bar, located inside the Chicago Pizza, during the last day of the Madden 19 tournament in Jacksonville. Kivlin watched and listened to what sounded like several loud pops, peaking in volume through his laptop speakers, people screaming in the background in real time. He then proceeded to frantically call any and everyone he knew at the tournament, including Elijah Clayton, but Clayton didn't answer. When Kivlin finally reached one of his other friends, they were hiding in the bathroom. His friend screamed through the phone in terror, expressing to Kivlin that people were dead and that he had heard Kivlin might be next. Shay Kivlin was in disbelief. Now in fear for his own life, he then called police after hearing that there was an unidentified active shooter that might be after him. The whole tournament was being live-streamed on Twitch, broadcasting to hundreds of viewers tuning in to watch the event. At the time of the shooting, Elijah Clayton, otherwise known as Trueboy, was up 7-0 against his opponent, Wesley Gittens, also known as Joe Rice. In the disturbing footage, a split-screen image is shared of the two gamers, live switching between their reactions and the gameplay video itself. Just after Elijah Clayton scores the field goal, the footage then cuts to the two players sitting next to one another, laughing and enjoying themselves. Right before the player cam fades out, switching back to the gameplay screen, you can see a small bright red laser dot visibly tracking on Clayton's sweatshirt. Then, just as the image fades, the gunshots ring out in two bursts of succession as people scream, trampling over other patrons in sheer panic trying to escape. 
The gameplay screen then shows the players eventually stand idle, and a controller disconnected warning prompt appears on the screen. As the second string of gunfire comes to a close, the 911 calls begin coming in. The first call was made at 1.34 p.m., just four minutes after the shooting, as people hid in bathrooms and others were still struggling to somehow exit the building, running for their lives. Fire rescue okay. box, what's the address of the emergency? I have no idea. Three. Ah. Sir, are you on the line? Yes, I'm here, I'm here. I need someone to hurry up, my, I'm losing feeling in my leg. I need someone I to hurry up. I have a patient at the CSX building on the line right now. Where are you, where are you hurt, sir? I'm, I'm, I'm under the CSX building. Where are you hurt on your body, sir? On my shin. On your shin? Yes. I've been shot in my shin. My skin has been ripped off, and I'm losing feeling in my shin. I, oh, I need you to hurry up, please. I'm, oh, sir, listen, listen. I need you to take a deep breath, okay? Talking to me will not delay your health. They're here. They're here. Thank they, you. They found you? Okay. First responders arrived only two minutes after the first call at 1.36 p.m. Luckily, the firefighters' union was holding a training course only a few blocks away from the shooting. Several wounded victims ran up to the firefighters seeking help and were swiftly escorted to the nearest hospital. August 26, 2018, 13 hours, 39 minutes and 35 seconds. Yeah, yeah, it's in the back. Uh, he was shot at the landing, and I saw a lot more uh, ambulances and stuff going that way. No, this patient, he said he hot in the So, but they're going past it. him. Where on his body is he shot? He shot dead in the ass, and it went through. Okay. It went through he, where? He went from one, one cheek out the other cheek. Okay. Is he breathing? He's breathing, but uh, I'm pretty sure in a minute it's not going to go good for him. At approximately 2.13 p.m., the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office put out a warning via social media, urging people to stay away from the Jacksonville landing. It was unknown at this point if the shooter was still active. As the video game bar was located on the pier, the U.S. Coast Guard was also called in to do a full sweep of the local waterways, not knowing how many shooters were involved at the time, helping to reduce the risk of their escape. EDT and SWAT teams also rushed in shortly after and proceeded to secure and evacuate the area. At 2.45 p.m., the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office took to Twitter to confirm that there were indeed multiple fatalities discovered at the scene. Soon after, authorities would conduct a formal press conference with the media to explain their findings during the very early stages of the investigation. Just to provide a quick recap, there was a Madden 19 tournament at the Chicago Pizza and the Jacksonville Landing. So we have a total of 13 victims, uh, of which 12 were shot. Two victims were found deceased at the scene, uh, 10 victims were treated at local hospitals for gunshot wounds, and one additional victim was treated for a non-gunshot related injury. The suspect also shot and killed himself at the scene, as we mentioned yesterday, and he is not included in the above count because he is not a victim, he is the suspect in this case. The last shot of the total 12 rounds that were heard fired during the Madden Games audio stream was that of a single self-inflicted bullet to the head of David Katz, killing him instantly. Katz wouldn't take his own life, however, until ending the lives of two other innocent young men 
that tragic August afternoon in 2018. The two men that were senselessly killed at the hands of David Katz were 22-year-old Elijah Clayton of Woodland Hills, California, and 27-year-old Taylor Robertson, also known by his gamer tag, Spot Me Please, from Ballard, West Virginia. Robertson was a husband and father to a two-year-old boy. He often spoke about his family to his peers. It was well known in the gaming community that Robertson was out at these competitions to help generate supplementary income, taking whatever winnings he'd earn back to his family in West Virginia to help provide for them. He amassed a career-winning total of over $80,000. He was a young and proud family man, a man that everyone in the gaming community revered as kind and compassionate. In shock, really. Something like that could happen to somebody that so, you know, had so much going for him. Good guy. Just can't say how good of a guy he was, you know. It's unreal. Elijah Clayton's friends and loved ones would share sentiments of the same, remembering Clayton as a happy and caring young man. According to EA's official website, Clayton was also the sixth highest earning competitor in all of the professional Madden circuits. Clayton's former high school, Chaminade College Prep in Los Angeles, released the following statement after learning of his tragic death. Elijah is remembered by his teachers, counselors, and school administrators as a sweet, mild-mannered young man who always showed great respect for his peers and the faculty. Elijah's happy smile and compassion evoked a similar attitude in others. The entire Chaminade community is earnestly praying for Elijah's family during this difficult time. Clayton's family members also took the time to address the media shortly after learning of his death. As you all can imagine, we are devastated by yet another senseless act of gun violence. Every person who has stood in this position has said that they never thought this would happen to their family, and we are no different. In addition to who you see here, he has six brothers and three sisters, a loving grandmother, aunts, uncles, great aunts and uncles, friends, and of course his gamer community. Elijah's family wants you to know that he was a good man. He did not believe in violence. He never even had a fist fight. He loved football, and hence out of all the video games he could play, he settled and mastered Madden. He made a good living gaming, and he saved his earnings so he can afford to go to college to continue his education. My cousin has to bury her firstborn, and it is just as terrible as that sounds. Nothing will replace the love that we have for Elijah. Along with the three fatalities found inside the bar, 11 others were wounded. Some victims narrowly escaped death, having been transported by ambulance, and some with lesser injuries had actually driven themselves to the local ER. The media quickly jumped on the story of this horrific event, creating salacious clickbait headlines, such as, Gamer Shoots Up Event Due to Losing a Video Game. As local outlets ran to the scene, several witnesses and gamers were interviewed. Among those was Dennis Alston, also known as Evil Ken, an opponent that had beaten David Katz in one of the early qualifying rounds. Uh, came out here to compete in a Madden tournament. Yeah. And from your vantage point, what happened in there? Uh, I don't know. We were competing, we were playing, and then uh, I said one of the guys, I mean, uh, he's pretty uh, known in the Madden community, he plays, like we all compete against each other online. You know, EA Sports, they have like these little tournaments and ladders that they do. Uh, he's a well-known, you know, competitor. Um, I don't know. Um, like I said, I guess he just uh, came and shot up the place. It seems like it was premeditated. I don't think it has anything to do with uh, him losing or who he lost to because uh, 
Uh, he lost. He took. He lost twice throughout the tournament. I was actually one of the people that beat him. And there was another guy, uh, Bugs, who beat him. And I mean, we're both still here. So um, I felt like he was targeting, but I don't think it was the people that beat him. So yeah. Do you have any idea what may have been the motivation behind that? Yeah, I don't know. I have no idea. I'm maybe some past. I mean, there's a lot of trash talking that happens online. So maybe you know, I don't know. I don't know. But again, I doubt it was specifically him beating or him losing because I mean he he lost to specifically two people, and uh, you know, uh, thankfully I mean we're we're both here. Unfortunately, some others aren't. Alston points out that himself and Reginald Brown, otherwise known as Boogs, had both beaten Cats in their respective matches therefore questioning the news headlines that were so heavily publicized in regards to Katz's possible motive. If David Katz truly seeked revenge on those that had beaten him in a game of Madden, why were these two particular individuals not targeted? Wesley Gittens, or Joe Rice, was sitting directly next to Elijah Clayton, competing against him when he was shot four times. Gittens was also the player to have most recently beat Katz, eliminating him from the entire competition altogether. If these headlines were true, and with Gittens having been in the exact proximity as Clayton, it seems odd that none of these other individuals were even fired upon. Something didn't seem right, and the gaming community, along with the victims' families, demanded answers. What exactly did you see in the way of him coming in and shooting? weird all weekend, man. I mean, he had shades on. He just he didn't speak to anybody. Even after we played, I beat him. Uh, I went to shake his hand and tell him good game, and he just looked at me. He didn't say anything. Um, came here, uh, I mean, it's two days. Today was the second day of competitions. Uh, he uh, had on basically the same outfit he had on the day before. So, I mean, that was kind of weird, I thought. So it's like, I mean, I, I feel like he came planned. I mean, obviously you don't need to change the clothes if you already were preparing to do something like that. Could you tell how many shots or what kind of weapon and this was? It was a bunch of shots. I mean, like probably like 10. I don't know the weapon. I know it had an infrared laser on it. I uh, pointed my way, I took cover. Um, I seen some good people uh, dead, man. I seen people on the floor dead. So, yeah, yeah. People that I knew, people that I'm friends with, uh, talk to, compete with online. Uh, it was, yeah, I seen people dead. You can tell in Alston's voice that he is clearly still in shock, having survived such a traumatic event just moments before. He pauses in between responses, perhaps reflecting over his answers, but most likely making attempts to understand the gravity of what had just gone on. One moment you're having fun with friends playing video games, and the next moment those friends are gone forever in what seemed to be an instant. One thing Alston does know is that he's extremely lucky to have made it out of that building alive. Upon securing and examining the murder scene at the Jacksonville Landing, Police made their way through a maze of horror, observing the aftermath of a chaotic shooting spree. Crime scene photos show a calamity of gaming chairs flipped over, controllers left in pools of blood, shoes left behind from patrons frantically running for their lives, and cell phones left on the bar top. An Uber driver's iPhone, ominously still active, shown in one of the photos, presents a notification on the screen asking if he was still online accepting rides. As police made their way through the venue, they almost immediately came to David Katz's lifeless body. Laying in a moat of his own blood, David Katz is shown wearing the same button-up shirt that he had been wearing all weekend. 
His arms spread, legs crossed, and eyes and mouth wide open as a result of the self-inflicted gunshot wound. As investigators examined his body, they noticed a second gun in his waistband, along with an extra magazine in his pocket. In another photo from a different angle, Katz is shown deceased, this time with Elijah Clayton also in the frame, only a few feet away from him through a nearby corridor. Clayton's headphones are still on his head as he lay slumped to his left side in a gaming chair. It was soon evident that Clayton was the main target of this attack, having suffered the majority of the directed fire. Clayton had injuries including a single gunshot wound to his chest, three to his right eye, and one to his forehead. He was ambushed, completely caught off guard, and had no chance of escaping as Katz targeted him first. Upon examining the scene further, 27-year-old Taylor Robertson was found next. Now deceased, Robertson's body was located outside on the venue's back patio. Crime scene photos show him with a single gunshot wound that entered through his back and exited out his chest. Robertson, shown lying on his back, was shot as he attempted to flee out the back door, staggering onto the rear patio where he would eventually collapse, and later found by police and pronounced dead at the scene. What's particularly saddening about Robertson's death is just how close he came to escaping. Having made it all the way to the exit and out the door, he was gunned down just centimeters from freedom. He was so close to escaping that day. Due to the heinous actions of David Katz, his and Elijah Clayton's lives were cut short that afternoon in Jacksonville. motive behind 24-year-old David Katz's actions that day are still a bit hazy. However, those in the gaming community don't seem to believe this happened, merely over losing a game of Madden. Katz obviously had planned the attack. He came to the event prepared, having traveled 11 hours from Baltimore with guns and ammunition loaded in his vehicle, waiting for just the right time to attack. But why? Katz had been staying by himself at a Motel 6 located at 6107 Youngerman Circle in Jacksonville, Florida. His room was booked for three nights off Expedia.com from August 23rd through the 26th. The motel was roughly 25 miles south of the Jacksonville Landing, where the shooting eventually occurred. As police were desperate to find more answers, they were able to obtain Katz's belongings that he had brought with him on the trip. Police obtained a duffel bag that contained a large assortment of foods, some opened, half-eaten, and tossed about. Some of the contents included instant ramen noodles, a box of Cheerios, Quaker oatmeal, and several roast beef and turkey instant TV dinners, among other things. Katz had brought enough food to last him well over a week. This only lends to the idea of his isolation and how he bunkered down inside room number 110 of the Motel 6 keeping to himself in between mad matches, along with his thoughts of the horrific actions he would soon take. The police eventually located David Katz's vehicle, a gray Toyota Avalon, in a nearby parking garage. Police photos show the interior of the vehicle, relatively clean inside, with the exception of an empty Xbox Minecraft Edition cardboard package, two empty gun cases, a blue duffel bag containing a spare loaded magazine, box of Remington Golder Sabre HPJ 9mm ammunition with only two bullets left in the box, a box of personal defense HST 45 caliber bullets with only 11 out of the 20 remaining, a Gmail printout receipt for the Madden 19 tournament at Jacksonville Landing, 
his wallet containing over $100 cash, and his car keys. Police say that Katz allegedly left the venue at Jacksonville Landing to retrieve the weapons from his car, and then proceeded immediately back inside to the tournament where he opened fire. Upon returning back to the game bar inside of Chicago Pizza, Katz more than likely had no plans of walking out of that venue alive. Having left his wallet and keys behind in plain sight, carelessly discarded on the car floor. It was clear to see that in his eyes, he would no longer be needing them. Florida's Sunshine Law, which requires the transparency of meetings, records, votes, and deliberations to the general public, have made all local police records for this case available including 3D video renderings of the killer's entrance and individual bullet trajectories. From these renderings, created to mimic David Katz's movements when re-entering the venue after retrieving his weapons, it is shown that he intentionally walked past several patrons and fellow gamers at the bar, focusing in with tunnel vision on Elijah Clayton. If Katz's intent was to kill those that, quote, beat him in a game, he presumably wouldn't walk directly past those he had just lost to moments before. In a report completed by homicide detective R.J. Reeves, sometime after the incident, a fellow gamer said, quote, Katz didn't shoot Elijah Clayton because he lost a game at a Madden tournament. Clayton was targeted because he continually picked on Katz, who was socially awkward. The names of the gamers that knew both Clayton and Katz personally have since been redacted from police reports released to the public. Another gamer told authorities that David Katz was involved with a company that published books for gameplay, a tips and tricks book, if you will, to help gamers become better at Madden and assist them in competing at a higher professional level. Various accounts claim that David Katz developed a dislike for Clayton after he allegedly purchased the book and then released the contents for free online, apparently to spite Katz. Clayton's best friend, Shay Kivlin, was also alleged to be among Katz's targets. Luckily, he got out just in time. When an officer finally arrived at Kivlin's hotel door, where he had been hiding out after his best friend had just been killed live on video, police finally informed him that David Katz was in fact deceased. Kivlin recounts having beat David Katz over a year before, securing his spot in a similar tournament and eliminating him. Kivlin had this to say about David Katz following the horrific shooting of August 26, 2018. I ended up beating him and then he ended up not making it because of that. Katz was known as a loner in the professional Madden community. Everyone knew he was kind of off. He never tried to be social. He came to play and kept to himself. He had some issues, and he took it out on everyone. He had people that he wanted, but anyone else who was in the way was going down. Shay Kivlin wasn't the only one that narrowly escaped death that day. Eleven others came very close to meeting the same fate as Elijah Clayton and Taylor Robertson. Among those that were wounded, Dalton Kent, a high school history teacher, shares his story with local reporters after being shot in the leg. He was confronted for comment while struggling on crutches just hours after his release from the hospital. Uh, it, the room was so um, packed at the time, so when the gunshots went off, everyone really panicked. I didn't even, I didn't know who it was. I didn't really see anything. I just kind of, when it, it happened, I just threw myself under the table and kind of just hoped for the best. And then once, um, after it stopped, um, I, a lot of people started flooding out the back door and I kind of just followed them and ran for my life. 
31-year-old Chris McFarland of Philadelphia, is also grateful that he made it out alive that day as well, after a bullet grazed his head, nearly hitting him in the crossfire. It's definitely a rough situation, you know, I mean, all I can think about is yesterday, what happened at the gaming tournament. Pretty much my thoughts and pretty much different situations run through my head if, you know, if everybody was moved a different way, if someone wasn't there in front of me, if the shooter had seven more bullets, whatever it may be, those are the situations I continuously run through my mind. McFarland goes on to explain that he initially thought he was punched in the back of the head due to the velocity of the bullet grazing by his left ear. After seeing the flesh wound to the side of McFarland's head, it's simply amazing that he survived. One false movement to his left or right, and he certainly would not be here today. McFarland was also reported to have been sitting in the exact same chair as Elijah Clayton only 10 minutes before Clayton was killed. Others that share this unexpected bond among the shooting survivors are Marquise Williams and Taylor Poindexter of Chicago, Illinois. Everyone running for their lives. People were being trampled. People were hiding. Everybody was screaming in fear. Anything that you expect to see in there is something like this. Marquise, did you see the shooter? I saw the back of his uh, head. He was actually backing out of where he was shooting from. We saw, we heard the first round. And then we saw two, three, four, oh, we heard two, three, four more rounds. And while those rounds were going off, he was literally backing out of the, out of the room. To the politicians, wake up because the people are dying on the streets and you guys are going through the same motions over and over and over again. Does it take for someone close to you to lose their lives to gun violence for you to wake up and realize to do something? Because quite frankly, I'm tired of seeing people hurt, dying on the news, or quite frankly today, being shot in front of my face. Marquise, accompanied by his fiancée, Taylor Poindexter, is clearly frustrated after they had just been within feet of the active shooter, David Katz. Taylor was shown by local media with crutches as she had sprained her ankle while trying to escape. We were able to catch up with both of them almost three years after the events of that day at the time of releasing this episode. They were both kind enough to sit down with Invisible Choir to give their individual and exclusive accounts, including the frightening details of just how close they came to the shooter on August 26, 2018. Before the shooting, everything was calm. Everybody was either relaxing or in the middle of a game or eating. We were actually watching a few guys play. Taylor turns to me and says that she's hungry. She wants something, she wants something to eat. And I say the same thing. So we walk out the room where everyone was playing a game and we sat down at the pizza bar. Probably no more than two or three minutes while sitting at the bar, we heard the first shot. Now it sounded like a balloon popping. So everyone just turned around, looked in the direction where it came from, maybe two or three more seconds, we saw everybody going back to what they were doing. After the first probably two or three, everyone got up and realized it was gunshots and we started running toward the exit. And I know we was on our phones majority of the time when the first gunshots happened, we looked at each other like, wait a minute, it's no balloons in here. And that's when everything started to register in. During the shooting, we actually got up and we were trying to run to the door. We probably about 15 to 20 feet away from the door, but we were further away from the shooter. And as we were get, trying to run for the exit, uh, we were trampled over trying to get out. A lot of people fell at the doorway, 
But as we were getting up, we actually saw the shooter backing up while he was firing shots into the uh, area. I was the first one between us to make it out the door. And then I realized that she wasn't with me and I heard her scream my name. I turned around. She was limping, trying to get to safety. So I picked her up and I carried her to an area that was safe and it had an elevator, but we couldn't access the elevator. Marquise had already made it out of the venue when he realized his fiance was not with him. In a truly heroic act of courage, he ran back into the building, picked up Taylor, and physically carried her to a corner of Chicago Pizza, where they found an elevator. With gunshots still ringing out, they eventually both managed to escape to a restaurant next door, where they took cover in a bathroom stall. It actually took us a while to get into the bathroom stall, because when we got to the restaurant next door there was a guy who opened the door and we were screaming we need help and he actually closed the door on us and then someone else came and opened the door either he worked for ea or he worked for the restaurant i'm not sure i want to say he worked for ea but he was saying there was a shooter in the area and that's when they opened the door to let us in and we got into the bathroom stall and we took cover for what seemed probably like an hour and then don't forget that when we did get into the stall it was other people there with us that actually helped us because they saw that i was like limping and he was helping me up at that point marquis first instinct was okay let me check you out and see you know it was a gunshot room thank god it wasn't a gunshot room it just i had sprayed my ankle from getting out it was about four or five people in each stall yeah police eventually arrived and those in the bathroom were escorted to safety we asked Marquise and Taylor their thoughts on what may have been David Katz's motive as members from within the Madden community. It seemed like he was very antisocial and um, he really kept to himself. I honestly don't think that it was over losing the game because there were few accounts of him being made fun of by other players in the community. Now, how true that is, I'm not exactly sure, but that is what the story is that was floating around the community. I have heard that he had an issue with one of the victims I was actually told that he was actually looking for another player who at the time was the current reigning Madden champion from the year before. Fortunately for him, he actually had gone to the hotel to take a nap and uh, he actually lost the same round that I lost. When any competitive game and you liable to crawl, come across people that just do, you know, regular smack talk like, oh, you weak, you trash, stuff like that. And he probably didn't know how to cope with it. That's just my opinion of it. It could be numerous of reasons why that occurred. Marquise goes on to give his take on what can be done to help prevent something like this from happening in the future at similar esports events. Security at the events. I said this then and I say this now. If I have to sit in front of a monitor next to a player and there's a police officer standing over us watching the scene, I am completely fine with that. Whenever I go somewhere, I'm automatically looking for the exit. I am always keeping my wits about me, looking around, making sure I see stuff. I definitely look at my surroundings a lot differently after that event. After various inaccurate media accounts, we thought it was important to note that Taylor Poindexter was indeed a competitor that day in the tournament and had been at several other events. The media falsely categorized her as, quote, the gamer's girlfriend when in fact both Marquise and Taylor were a part of the tournament. 
We think it's important to note that women are out there competing at these events, along with the boys, and in many cases, playing with and beating the best of them. There is one thing that I feel like was misconstrued. I know it was like some media outlets list said that I was shot in the ankle. I never was shot. I had sprayed my ankle while fleeing the scene. And also, too, I mean, it may not be much to anybody else, but I was actually a participant there, too. I was competing that day as well. So it's just been portrayed me as, you know, just being the supportive better half to Marquise, just cheering him on. We both competed that day. We definitely still um, want to show, send our prayers and love and support to the Madden community and also to the family of True Boy, True Boy and Spot Me. Even though it's, some time has passed, the pain is still there. What Marquise and Taylor may or may not have known is that David Katz walked directly past them upon returning from his vehicle to retrieve the weapons. As he headed straight for Elijah Clayton just before the attack, the 3D rendered video available from Jacksonville police filings shows Katz's exact walking path and movements upon entering the building. The recreations also show that Marquise and Taylor were mere feet from where David Katz would ultimately take his own life, where they were initially sitting at the bar. The subject of gun control would inevitably become a major topic of discussion when analyzing the reasoning behind the Jacksonville Landing shooting. More importantly, how David Katz, a man with an apparent extensive history of mental health issues, was able to obtain these weapons and from where. The answer to the question of how, surprisingly, is legally. Katz was able to legally purchase two firearms in his home state of Maryland from a licensed gun dealer along with the ammunition and aftermarket laser, which he modified to fit the weapon that took three lives, including his own. Katz only used one of the guns in the shooting, concealing it in a purple backpack just before brandishing the weapon and then throwing the bag to the floor while firing relentlessly at Elijah Clayton. The question then turns into how was a man that had been involuntarily committed to several mental health facilities able to legally purchase the guns? The answer to that question still remains unclear. In the state of Maryland, which ordinarily has a reputation of taking steps beyond the mandated federal laws when it comes to selling firearms to those, quote, adjudicated as a mental defective. Federal law also prohibits individuals from purchasing firearms if they have spent more than 30 days in a mental health facility involuntarily. The several months that David Katz spent at Utah's Redcliffe Wilderness Camp did not, however, constitute as a, quote, mental health facility, but rather is regarded as a, quote, therapy camp for troubled teens, thus not excluding him from purchasing firearms legally. And while he spent several stints in various institutions for mental health over the past decade, none were consecutive for the duration of 30 days or more. Obtaining these weapons legally would have also meant Katz had to complete a firearms class, submit fingerprints, and pass a background check all of which he had procedurally done. Gun policy experts would eventually conclude that David Katz's history of mental health would not have been enough to indicate that he was ever a threat to society, stating that Katz hadn't shown any, quote, significant acts of violence. Even with the 26 separate police visits to the Katz home, a laundry list of stays at mental health facilities against his will, having been prescribed various antipsychotic medications, and having been warned by family therapists, including Dr. David Berman, who stated, quote, David could lash out and become so angry that he would hit and hurt his mother. 
Katz still somehow met the criteria for the legal purchase of two firearms. When tragedies like the Jacksonville Landing shooting occur, it's in the innate fiber of our being to seek out and demand answers. We yearn to understand why these things happen in our society in an effort to protect ourselves and ideally to help prevent them from reoccurring in the future. We want to know why these things happen because, frankly, our inability to comprehend these horrific acts is frightening. If we can't find the root of a tragedy, are we ever truly safe? We're all comprised of the same flesh and blood, but never of the same human psyche. And perhaps that is the scariest part of all. The truth of the matter is that not one sole component, such as gun control, effective mental health services, or the isolated and often sleepless environment attributed with high-level gaming, or the alleged bullying between fellow competitors, are issues we can individually identify as those that led to the atrocious act of violence. Rather, that was more than likely a combination of all of these things. And though we may never know what exactly was going on in the mind of David Katz in the weeks, months, and year leading up to the shooting, we can only remain hopeful that any warning signs visible in the future are preemptively addressed, monitored, and treated with great care before it's too late. Esports tournament announcer Toshiba Sharon was one of the commentators present that day. He shared this powerful and compassionate message with the family members and Madden community as a whole following the tragic shooting in Jacksonville. I just wanted to pay my respects to the people, um, uh, True Boy, and it's uh, Eli Clayton, and um, it was um, Taylor Robertson, and um, I just wanted to pay my respects to the family and just let them know that their family member didn't die alone. They died with... Um, they died with family, and they died with a, a brotherhood that loved them, and they died doing something that they uh, loved to do. Everyone's connected, and it's no bubbles, it's no individual people, we're all one. And hopefully those events yesterday crossed those lines, merged those lines to where everyone knows that everyone's affected, and we need to work together and understand people's needs and, and talk to their needs and address their needs because their needs are, affect us. <laughs> 